welcome to the Neutral Ground Podcast. In this episode, we're going to continue our series on the three most important traits of neo-modernism, with a discussion of the importance of transcending the corporeal, or the body. In the previous episode, we discussed the importance of narrative reassurance. You can certainly check out that episode if you haven't already. So what do I mean when I say transcending the body, and why is this important? Well, human beings are born into all different types of situations when it comes to the body. There are a tremendous amount of kind of physical data points, if you will, that make us different from each other. And these various data points often play, at the very least, some role in the shaping of who we are. However, art, history, and philosophy have often shown a bias in favor of pursuing the human experience as it relates to inquiry, emotions, and spirituality, more so than the body itself. What I mean is that our greatest literary texts and philosophies tend to focus on the ways in which we as a collective species can transcend the limitations of our body, the ways in which we break through the barriers of our physical form of flesh and bone to become something greater, something more. Now, I've said this in other episodes, but I'll clarify it again because I I really don't want to be misunderstood here. When I use the term great or greater, I don't mean morally. I mean something forceful, something that extends itself beyond the norms of our existence. That, to me, is morally neutral. It's simply an expression of grandness. I'll give you a quick example that comes directly from my own research. Captain Ahab from the novel Moby Dick, right? This is a a famous captain with one leg from the mind of arguably the greatest author in American literature, Herman Melville, and I would certainly make that argument that he's the greatest. Ahab had one of his legs torn off by the white whale, Moby Dick. And this has produced in him an almost demonic-like obsession with pursuing and killing Moby Dick. Now, although Ahab is physically limited by the loss of his leg, you cannot deny, if you read the novel, the tremendous force that he exudes every time he speaks and every time he surfaces on the deck of the ship, the Pequod. When Ahab is on deck, people are pulled into him by the magnetism that he exudes. Ahab is great but there is no way around the fact that he leads the majority of his crew to their deaths in pursuit of the white whale. Therefore, his force is great, but he's kind of a jerk. We'll most definitely be talking about Ahab at some point. Nonetheless, Ahab is able to transcend the body to become something greater than his mortal form. Now, we are physical beings, right? There's no way around that. We interact with the physical world, and for the most part, we live our lives based on the physicality of our existence, and with good reason, of course, right? We are subject to scientific laws that interact with our physical being constantly. We need food, water, oxygen, 
Gravity pulls upon our physical form so that if we tried to jump off the roof of our house when we were 11 and luckily walked away with only a sprained ankle, we quickly learned two things. I am not Superman. I mean, we are not Superman. And gravity is like really strong. So why is it that we tend to write so much about metaphysics? Why is it that we need to transcend the body so much throughout our history? You know, part of this, I think, has to do with just how intimately aware we are of our mortality. That our bodies will degrade over time. And I I recently actually just played a, a pickup game of basketball, first time in actually quite a long time. And of course, the next day, I was very much reminded of the decay of my own body. But that awareness of our mortality creates certain natural boundaries that we simply can't overcome, at least not yet. And there's also the fact that the boundaries actually can be good. We can even find more freedom within these boundaries. For example, parents often let their children play freely on a playground. Now, this only appears like true freedom to the children. In reality, the parents have established the playground as the actual boundary. Nonetheless, children practice and play with the concept of freedom within those structures. Well, adults kind of do the same thing. We just don't always think about it that way. Have you ever driven in traffic and watched the person in the car next to you rocking out like they are at a concert? I mean, they're full-blown singing into their hand like it's a microphone, right? They're rocking out to, to whatever their guilty pleasure is, you know, uh, open Arms by Journey is a is a good one for me, and you know, Africa by Toto. I'll rock out to the to those all day. Yeah, they're having fun on the playground. That's really what they're doing. The artificial boundary that they have set up is their cars. But when they arrive at their destination, right when when we get to work, those boundaries of safe play collapse immediately. And Bob in the car goes from being the lead singer of, you know, Def Leppard or whatever, to the man who yells at you for not file, you know, filling out your, your staples order correctly. It's not very punk rock of you, Bob. The mind creates and dismantles boundaries like this all the time. We create thought exercises in our minds and then play around in that space, only to leave them when we are ready to move back into the real world. That's an incredibly healthy way to grapple with ideas. Now, there still remains, however, this awkward relationship between the mind and the body. Where does that come from? Well, in a purely Western context, we can start by looking at St. Augustine although he certainly didn't invent this idea. If you're at all familiar with the works of St. Augustine, you've likely heard someone talk about the saint as having a rather contentious relationship with the body. In fact, many times people boil down Augustinian philosophy to, we need to hate our bodies. 
but that's a bit dismissive of his evolution as a philosopher. Recently, scholars have started to push back a bit against this narrative that Augustine hated the body in the hopes of balancing out his narrative a little bit more. Augustine did hold the belief that the body is what mostly leads humans into spiritual corruption. I certainly don't think that this is a hot take today, right? I mean, seemingly every human being has some struggle with their bodies that requires a tremendous amount of discipline to either keep in check and or overcome because it can lead them to great strife and even suffering. But by the end of his life, Augustine's thoughts became more clear on this topic and even more nuanced. He didn't want the body to be considered evil so much as he wanted to try and bring the body in line with godliness. You can argue against his interpretation of sex and desire all day, but I think it becomes somewhat reductive to say that in his latter years, he hated the body. For some really interesting kind of critical takes on the discussion, you can read the works by Gabriel Hess and David G. Hunter. And I've got the publication information for those on my website at theneutralgroundpodcast.com. And I should also have them up on my substack as well at joemeyer.substack.com. Nonetheless, Augustinian ideas of hating the body persisted and continue to persist even today. The point that I want to make here about Augustine is not about whether or not you agree or disagree with scholarly interpretations of his works. My point is that in any reading of him, one of the arguments that you have to address is the belief in transcending the pull of the body toward destruction of the self. Let me propose a hypothetical for a moment, and then let's break it down somewhat. If I feel ashamed of how I look in the mirror, is that the body or the mind creating that feeling? Now, we might be quick to say that it's the mind. However, what is actually producing the feeling in the mind? Is it chemical or philosophical? There are times when philosophy can overcome the chemicals that rush in and out of our brains. We feel depressed and or feel bad about something and we produce a logical train of thinking that, at the very least, allows us to muster enough movement to go about our day and genuinely seem fine enough that others can't really tell, maybe, that the feeling underneath is really not quite that great. In that moment, you can make the argument that philosophy allows us to transcend the chemical feeling, in favor of moving through our experiences. Now, this is a fairly universal human experience in that we all have moments like this. However, there are other times when philosophy is not strong enough. Times when the chemicals, or the lack thereof, overcome any chance that we have to produce and or believe the philosophy of our mind. And at that point, philosophy serves as very little help 
to rid ourselves of the anger, the hurt, or despair that we feel. Now, when I asked the question earlier of whether that feeling was produced by the body or the mind, in some ways it can be one, the other, or both. When it comes to dealing with the philosophical struggles of our existence, we have a great many methods by which we can try to deal with them. Exercise, therapy, being with friends and loved ones, reading great works of literature that explore the philosophy we're struggling with. Even movies, music, and, well, podcasts. All of these things can make a tremendous amount of difference in attempting to transcend feelings of philosophical despair. But how do we transcend the body itself when the body is authoring the despair? Well, a few trends in society are trying to answer that question right now. You might have noticed over the past few years a huge uptick in the discussions of psychedelics and meditation in popular culture. Let's take a look at the psychedelic part here. Scientists are now studying the ways in which psychedelics can help those who are suffering with diagnosed mental health conditions and or dealing with overwhelming trauma. Johns Hopkins is really kind of leading the charge here in this respect, specifically Dr. Roland R. Griffith and his research into the use of psilocybin, which is a kind of fungi or mushroom. The research is producing some incredible data on the effectiveness of something like psilocybin to help people break through their treatment-resistant depressions and trauma. Again, this is the idea of trying to overcome the body's signal to the mind. In fact, listen to the outcome of one of Griffith's studies. And I'm going to do my best here uh, as a PhD English person to try to say this just right. So bear with me. The study essentially looked at three groups of people, and each group had 25 participants. And one of these groups was given a low dose of psilocybin, uh, one milligram essentially. And part of what they wanted to look at was the effect of psilocybin in conjunction with various levels of kind of spiritual practice support. I think, in other words, a, a way of, of looking at life from a from an, a transcending the body kind of experience here, right? And so this first group had a very low dose of psilocybin and what they called standard moderate level support for spiritual practice. The other two groups in the study were given high dose or high doses of psilocybin, somewhere between 20 and 30 milligrams. These groups broke up with each other based on the amount of support that they were given for their spiritual side. So the second group was given also just a moderate amount or standard amount of support for spiritual practice. And the third group was given a much higher support for spiritual practice. Now, here's a quote from the study itself. 
Compared with low-dose, high-dose psilocybin produced greater acute and persisting effects. At six months, compared with low-dose, kind of standard uh, religious practice, both high-dose groups showed large significant positive changes on longitudinal measures of interpersonal closeness, in gratitude, life meaning slash purpose, in forgiveness, and now hear this, death transcendence, daily spiritual experiences, religious faith and coping, and community observer ratings, end quote. All because the psilocybin was able to sort of break through the body's signals to the mind here. Now, the research at the, you know, medical slash university level is one thing. But there's also an uptick in just the general discussion of psychedelics as well. Now, my argument would be that this is not by coincidence, like we've just discovered this connection between humanity and psychedelics. The connection goes back thousands of years. This uptick in interest, however, is very much connected with our culture of neo-modernism. It's a tool that makes transcending the body much easier. It provides individuals a means to reach places outside of the awareness of the limitations of their mortal form. When you listen to people talk about their psychedelic experiences, what do we usually hear? They tend to be described in mystical and or religious language, right? In an article by Alan Watts entitled Psychedelics and Religious Experience from 1968, he talks about his own experience using psychedelics. One of the four primary characteristics he identifies as experience in psychedelic usage is awareness of eternal energy. He describes it as such, quote, One sees quite clearly that all existence is a single energy and that this energy is one's own being. Of course there is death as well as life, because energy is a pulsation, and just as waves must have both crests and troughs, the experience of existing must go on and off. Basically, therefore, there is simply nothing to worry about, because you yourself are the eternal energy of the universe, playing hide-and-seek, off and on, with itself. At root... You are the Godhead, for God is all there is. End quote. As an early Americanist, this reminds me a lot of Emerson, actually, and the transcendental movement. Although Watts makes this energy into something more human and universal, what is fascinating to me is that religion still provides the best vehicle from which to try and explain that urge for transcendence. Let's get a more in-the-now discussion on the relationship between transcendence, religion, and psychedelics. In Brian Murarescu's book, The Immortality Key, he opens the book with a quote, like a discussion that he had with a woman. Just listen to the way this woman describes her experience here. Quote, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God, she affirms. 
But then I began to feel this love, just overwhelming, all-encompassing love. There is a long silence. And the way I describe it is being bathed in God's love, she goes on, her voice cracking, because I find no other way to describe it. End quote. Now, the reason for this type of language, of course, is because religion often has transcendence of the physical built into its very structure. There is more than just your physical form. And for billions of people, that provides enough of a transcendent experience that it gives them strength through suffering and hope through despair. For others, however, psychedelics remain one of the ways for them to try and reach beyond their physical form. Again, these connections that we're making today between psychedelics and religious experience are not new. So why is it that these studies from the 1960s didn't seem to carry the same weight as they do today? One reason, among many of course, is that they came out during postmodernism. And what is one of the chief characteristics of postmodernism? Skepticism of grand narratives. This point connects back to our previous episode on narrative reassurance. There was skepticism of these experiences built into the very fabric of the society back in the 60s. It's not to say that people didn't tell their psychedelic stories of transcendence or that people didn't believe them. However, the dominant pull of postmodernism tended to push these stories to the periphery of dominant discourse. Whereas neo-modernism seeks narrative reassurance. Rather than look with a skeptical eye on the transcendent narratives of people, we actually look at them with a yearning to believe them to a large degree. We want to hear about these mystical experiences because they are evidence to us that there is something beyond our physical limitations. And that provides us with a kind of hope that we can strive to become something greater than what we currently are and how we currently feel about ourselves. Now, you've undoubtedly also heard numerous people exalt the use of meditation today as a means of trying to remove themselves from the material world. Oftentimes, the language that is used in meditation is quieting the mind. What does that mean exactly? What is the noise of our mind? The noise is mostly tied to our physical existence. People hate me at work. I hate my job. I feel angry and frustrated all the time. These are manifestations of our conscious self. So, when we try to quiet the mind... We're trying to create a space from which we can simply be in existence and then slowly reintroduce the important aspects of life back into our state of being. It's sort of like when you get a brand new phone and you're like, all right, I'm back to the core here. No ridiculous programs and apps, just, you know, kind of taking up my space. 
then little by little, you start to install the programs and apps, and you start to feel digitally claustrophobic, let's call it. And you have to wipe it clean all over again. But in meditation, for that brief period of time, you have the ability to try and let in the transcendent elements of human existence back into your life. Make no mistake, meditation is about transcending the pull of the body towards self-destruction and trying to make it a vehicle from which you can experience a kind of sacred existence as a human being. So what do we do with all of this? If we wish to transcend the body, are we supposed to hate it? No. And I want to make it clear It's one of the reasons why I wanted to try and and clarify a bit of Augustinian philosophy, because I don't believe that he wished us to hate our bodies either, especially toward the end of his kind of philosophical existence. In fact, I offer you a section from Walt Whitman's I Sing the Body Electric. Whitman writes, Have you seen the fool that corrupted his own live body? Or the fool that corrupted her own live body? For they do not conceal themselves and cannot conceal themselves. Oh, my body. I dare not desert the likes of you and other men and women, nor the likes of the parts of you. I believe the likes of you are to stand or fall with the likes of the soul, and that they are the soul. I believe the likes of you shall stand or fall with my poems, and that they are my poems. Whitman raises the body to the level of the spirit. He makes it into something worshipful. And you're thinking, thanks, Joe, now I'm confused. Why would we transcend something that Whitman raises to the level of worship? Because... Although I cannot meet you on the level of the body, we differ in everything from follicles to limbs to height to DNA, I can meet you in transcendence. I can meet you in suffering because I have lost. I can meet you in joy because I have laughed. And I can meet you in humanity because I'm human. These are not concepts of the physical world. They transcend and unite us. I'll leave you with an anecdotal story. I was in a grocery store some time ago, and I was waiting online. The line was moving a little bit slower because the cashier was new and being trained. You know, a young person, looked like a teenager, maybe very early 20s. Suddenly, this guy about two people in front of me throws up his hands and starts yelling and making a scene about getting someone who knows what the hell they're doing to work the register. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The person immediately in front of me, someone I've never met before or seen in my life, turns around and gives me this look. And in that look was a conversation that expressed 
our mutual frustration. Not with the young cashier, but with the gentleman in front of him. I swear to you, in that look, he and I shared what seemed like years worth of conversations that we never actually had. In that moment, there were no physical bonds that made us different from each other. We united in a moment, transcended our personal frustrations, and found unification without saying a single word. The body is not to be hated. Your body is wonderful. However, it has force. It has a gravity to it that we must always be mindful of. And that gravity can sometimes make us lose sight of the fact that we share human bonds that transcend the physical ones. Neo-modernism reminds us that we yearn for transcendence of the body. But it doesn't mean that we should dismiss the body. Just to close out my story here. Ultimately, a manager came and helped the young person and the line started moving much more quickly. When it came time for me to cash out my groceries, I made it a point to tell the manager that I thought the young cashier did a great job handling the pressure. And that put a smile on the young person's face. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on the neutral ground and have a great day. As always, I I thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to listen. And I do hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider supporting my endeavor by leaving a positive rating, a kind comment, and or subscribing to the podcast on whichever platform you're currently using to listen to me now. Additionally, you can find me on joemeyer.substack.com and on my main website, theneutralgroundpodcast.com, where you can listen to episodes and contact me with a question or a comment via email. And you can even leave an audio comment with some thoughts of your own, which I would love to start getting. If your comment is particularly thoughtful and can spark some good thought in us, I'll use it on the show and we'll grapple with it together. Thank you for listening. Your time is truly appreciated.